Turn to Exodus 31, passages in Scripture I will likely never forget, as this is one of the nastiest trick questions I got on my ordination exams. About a dozen years ago, very difficult question. Exodus 31, we're not going to handle the whole chapter, we're just going to deal with the first handful of verses. Uh... A little different than we've been for the last couple of weeks. This is God's word. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach, the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability, that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, and the pure lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offerings with its, all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. Let's pray. Lord, here we have, as you have commanded, it will be done. And so we ask, as you have commanded, that we hear your voice, listen, and obey. We ask for your spirit to accomplish that in us. Give life and light. Give obedience and love. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen. I want you to imagine a situation. Now, for some of you, I acknowledge this is not going to maybe be an imagination. Might bring up a little bit of kind of emotion as you think about it, but for others, it might be an imagination. It's you go to a job that you're working at. And the workload is, we will say, heavy. Uh, you, you go to work every day, and man, it's just screaming busy. From the moment you, you get there to the moment you leave, maybe actually after you leave too, it's just busy. Until the one day where you go in and you find out that your, your partner or your teammate or your peer, the, the one that was helping kind of shoulder the load, has been let go. Maybe the company couldn't afford them anymore. Maybe it was uh, the boss's 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 boss was some new consultant or something. Who knows? But your peer has been let go. And suddenly you're confronted with a situation where you have even more work and even less help. Now, good common sense would say, well, of course, they're going to adjust expectations. Good common sense would say, hey, there's half the people. They're going to have half the expectations. But you already know how the situation goes, don't you? 
Do expectations change? No, of course not. Are they willing to, to let you produce just a little bit less? Well, no, of course not. In fact, actually, in some cases, it almost feels like they make it more difficult along the way. You find yourself in a circumstance where you, you want to get stuff done, but it's just like, man, do they even want me to succeed? Again, some of you, I said, would be able to relate to that maybe for a small spell of your job, hopefully not your entire career. Can you imagine to relating to that your entire life? Like literally every day of your life was filled with that. I mean, what would that do to your psyche? Can you imagine that? From the moment you're like this tall and you have to start helping out in the family business. Can you imagine the trauma it would do to your brain? Every day having to go in knowing that there's no extra help and you're never going to get it done and it's never going to be enough and oh my, what are we going to do? Again, just think through the emotional difficulty that would create in you. It's important that we think about that because that's how the book of Exodus really starts, doesn't it? With God's people who have suddenly said, well, you know what? We're not going to give you straw anymore. And you have to continue building bricks. God's people who are in Egypt laboring under a bad boss. He's not just a boss. He's their slave master, Pharaoh. And has been tormenting them for better part of four centuries. And now in the latter parts of this enslavement has effectively changed the terms of the working agreement. No straw for bricks. In fact, you have to continue making the bricks. You have to get the straw yourself. In fact, actually, we're just going to make the requirements harder. And if you don't agree, we'll just have some, you know, public executions to improve morale, maybe. To motivate you to work. And again, I like to think about just... Again, what the what that would do to the psyche? What that would do to how you think about yourself? I love thinking about those kind of questions. I remember reading an article. It was in a journal, uh, scientific journal, not too long ago, where uh, they were talking about uh, the psychology of race and what it does to you. And it's intriguing how. Uh, Children that are asked what their race is before they take a standardized test, it will impact their score, depending on which race they're from. Because for some, it sparks feelings of excitement and courage and bravery, and I can do anything. And for others, it doesn't. It's more of a, well, I don't have any confidence. It's amazing how a simple question like that can impact a, a child's score. How a feeling of excitement can impact an athletic performance. They've been telling athletes for years to imagine in your mind, to rehearse what you're going to do before you do it. They haven't figured out exactly why. They just knew it was a good thing to do. Science is now documenting that if you replay the activity before you do it, your endorphins, your adrenaline, all of your body processes begin to fire before you ever do it. So like if you go to hit a golf shot and you hit it really hard, you think about explosions before you do, and it gets your body to go ahead and start producing. Here you have a people group that their psychology for centuries has been to labor under an unjust boss. 
And a boss that is scary, a boss that kills them when they make mistakes, a boss that is unfair. And you have to wonder that in chapter 31 of the book of Exodus, as they stand at the foot of the mountain of God, and they have just been given the most spectacular set of instructions by the most spectacular boss in the history of the world, under the most spectacular circumstances, you have to wonder how many of them were like, does he really think we can get this done? I mean, does he really think we can get this done? You have to think some of those Israelites would have had that immediate sort of gut response of just every time they'd ever interacted with authority, they knew it was the authorities making them jump through some absurd hoop that never needed to be jumped through just so they could. You have to wonder, is that sneaking in here as we end God's commands for his tabernacle? Again, I I love how full these are because it highlights just, again, how weak we are as humans that when we read these, we're a third of the way through his description of the tabernacle. We're like, and I'm out, I'm done. Like, I'm, I'm ready to move on to the next thing. Why are we having another sermon on the tabernacle? How on earth are we supposed to get it all done? And remembering that Revelation's primary cause, the Bible's primary task is to show us who God is. This first part of 31 shows us a great deal. First, it shows us that God does genuinely care about our obedience. He's not like wicked Pharaoh... He's not like your crazy boss. He's not like that goofy politician. He's not like that person who adds duties to your job description, but then never equips you to do them. Those are the ones you always have to wonder, do they actually care? It's like the the families in youth ministry, I used to see this all the time, where families would make a rule and they would never, ever, ever enforce it. And it's like, well, you don't care about obedience to that rule if you never enforce it. You don't care about that rule. Not mad at you. Maybe don't make it if you don't care about it. Here God has given them a massive list of rules, and you would have to wonder what kind of God is this. And then in chapter 31, he gives them a resounding, clear, and over-the-top answer. I care about it, and I'm kind. I care about all of this. It's going to get done. I love how that's how the section ends. <laughs> According to all that I have commanded, they shall do. It's going to get done. But it's going to get done because he cares about it and he's kind. He's not the vicious taskmaster who whips us into submission or into obedience. He's gentle and patient and kind and loving. In fact, actually, he gives his people all the resources they need. We're going to look at just a handful of those resources here. 
the Lord says to Moses, See, look, behold, (laughs) I'm giving you something. First and foremost, and this is an intriguing one, it's not the one that you would expect to have. It's not the one you would hope, maybe. I'm giving you Bezalel. Great. Thank you, Bezalel. Son of Uri, son of Hur, tribe of Judah. Neat. Thanks, God. One guy. Oh, no, he's got an assistant, Oholiab. Bezalel and Oholiab. And Bezalel and Oholiab are neat guys. Um, Interesting things, weird things about them. Bezalel's from the tribe of Judah. A neat thing to note that uh, he's not a Levite. Only Levites were allowed to touch anything connected to the tabernacle. But interestingly, the guy in charge of building, it's not a Levite. It's a guy from Judah. That's neat. Happens to be a brilliant craftsman already. The Lord's going to use that. But it's intriguing. If you think about it from Moses' perspective, I mean, you would have to think at some point he would be like, Lord, these people are bozos. How on earth are we going to build this? I mean, they're really... And the Lord highlights from the very beginning that one of his primary mechanisms for equipping his people for obedience is his people. That is going to be the first and overwhelming thing that we need to see. That one of the primary mechanisms that God provides to equip his people for obedience is his people. You see, the... the, the, re, the relationship with God has never changed in this regard. Moses is recipient of God's grace and mercy in a fantastic fashion. He's been able to commune with God in a way that very few have up to this point in human history. He's been given God's kind commands, and his kind commands are all about how to have mankind meet with God. There are the same generous types of commands that we have given to us today. And Moses would be confronted with the same kind of question that we are confronted with today. How do I obey these kind commands of my God? How is it that I'm supposed to obey? You see, that question is a question that has not changed from then to now. I mean, how many times when we talk with ourselves in our heads or talk with our friends or neighbors or spouses or we read our Bibles or talk with our children, are we confronted with that question? How am I supposed to do this, God? (laughs) I mean, I know what you say, but how am I supposed to do this? I mean, the answers are really usually quite obvious. In fact, most of the time when people struggle with obedience, it is not from a lack of understanding. Very rarely. It's a lack of obedience, it's a lack of desire, it's a lack of other things, but not of understanding. And it's intriguing here that God's first solution for obedience is this text is to highlight the connection with the people of God. Moses, you want to do this. You want to be obedient. Where are you going to have to look for help in that obedience? Well, you're going to have to look to the people of God. Again, this is so true today as we see, again, for ourselves, if you are struggling with sin, struggling with discouragement, struggling with hurt or heartache, struggling with wounded or weariness, struggling in any fashion, God's construction 
of this relationship hasn't changed. What's one of the primary places you are to look for help? It is to the people of God. Do not go it alone. We see this all throughout the scriptures. Whereas people isolate themselves from the body of Christ, it is to their great destruction. We see it all of the time in our own experience. We have it framed more positively, Acts chapter 2, how uh, the body of Christ, the church is building each other up and they're equipping each other and loving on each other and serving each other. We have it all throughout 1 Corinthians. It's intriguing how much in Corinth, a church that is a hot mess of every sort, they are a dumpster fire in every imaginable way. And part of the Lord's solution for them is for them to spend time with each other. That's intriguing. I mean, they're practicing the Lord's Supper incorrectly. And what does he say? You got to do it where you can all do it together. Let the body of Christ build each other up. Now, the great challenge with this, though, is certainly as frustration increases or as pain increases or as hurt feelings increase or as the lies of the devil increase, we want to isolate ourselves further. I'm struggling with sin. I'm struggling with hurt. I'm struggling with pain. I can't deal with those people. I have to have them at arm's reach. No, that's when you need them most. When the self-deceptions have grown so rich in your own heart that you can't have them near. That's when you need them most. God provides Bezalel and Oholiab. Bezalel in charge, Oholiab, his assistant, Secondly, he notes here in verse 3, and this is my trick question from ordination. Bezalel and I have filled him with the Spirit of God. Bezalel is unique and special in this regard in that he is one, the first person mentioned in the Scriptures to be filled with the Spirit of God, and one of the only people in the Old Testament mentioned to be filled with the Spirit of God, not connected to office. Lots of people are filled with the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament as written in the Scriptures, but that's almost entirely connected to office. They're prophets, priests, kings, various servants of, of official capacity in the Lord's kingdom. Here you have a dude. He is not only a dude, he is a craftsman of a dude. He's not anybody within uh, Israel's kind of authority structure. He's not some guy who's you know, uniquely gifted to preach. This is a guy who up until this part of God's law was just simply a craftsman. He probably was really good at chiseling out signets in stone, and that was what he did for a living. And after this part of God's law, his whole world is about to change. But I love how it highlights even in this relationship that the Lord provides his people, but it's not just that his people are the solution. It's that his people are where the spirit of God live. It's where he himself lives with his people, which is an amazing truth in the Old Testament, because this is something we don't really see come clear until the new. It's not something that we see come clear until Acts chapter 2. That's why we read that earlier. 
On Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit descends upon the church and they have the fullness of the Spirit dwelling within them and He brings His gifts and blessings and He works in and through them. And you have that idea taken up all throughout the rest of the New Testament of where is it that God lives? We don't need a temple anymore. Why do we not need a temple? Because God already lives with His people. He doesn't live in a building. He lives within them. That idea is introduced here in Exodus 31 in kind of seed form. That God has given the people of God to each other to help them fight sin, to equip them for obedience. But it's not just this horizontal relationship where we're helping each other, but instead God's Spirit residing within those people to equip us to serve. You see, this is an amazingly important thing. And I give you one little hint. Part of it, your English doesn't really help us in this. Uh, this is reliance upon commentaries and original language. But as you get down into the final half of this section that we didn't really listen to that carefully, you should have, but you didn't. Verses 7 and following where all the things that these guys are in charge of building, the tent of meeting, the ark of testimony, the mercy seat, the furnishings of the tent, the table, utensils, lampstand, incense, all of that. And then part, you get to 10, finely worked garments, the holy garments, There's one kind of key bit that your English doesn't highlight very well, and that in verse 10 there is something listed that has never been talked about yet in the Scriptures. There's something they're commanded to create that God hasn't told them about yet. It wasn't listed in Exodus 28 or 29 or 30. There's garments that they have to make, a certain type of braided garment that we don't actually know what it is. The the verbiage is different. It's not what they've already been explained. It's not connected to the high priest garment. We don't exactly know. How on earth are you supposed to accomplish a task that you don't even know what it is? Can you imagine that? Going to work every day? Your boss being like, at the end of the day, look, you didn't get those three things done. Well, what are the three things? Well, I'm not going to tell you. Well, how am I supposed to get them done if you won't tell me what they are? Well, the answer is God is telling them. He's telling them in a different way. He's giving them his spirit so that this is ultimately and fully accomplished in God's perfect purposes. The spirit empowers Bezalel empowers Oholiab so that they are equipped and ready to serve in a new and greater purpose and fashion. This is where I think sometimes the disconnect between our brain and our hearts is maybe quite large in Reformed circles. I am of the opinion that Reformed theology produces the most sophisticated and fully balanced and biblical understanding of the Spirit's working, and yet it is one of the areas that we believe the least To believe that the Spirit of God lives within the people of God and that because He lives within me, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So when I come time to resist sin, guess what? You can win. If you're in Christ, you have the Spirit of God not just fighting on your side. He's inside you fighting on your side. When it comes time to deal with that difficult coworker, 
Or that difficult child or that difficult parent or that difficult spouse and you're like, man, I am going to just tear my hair out. Well, you know what? You have the Spirit of God within you. You don't have to tear your hair out. You don't have to fly off the handle. You don't have to kind of lose it. You have God within, within you. Indwelling you, equipping you, providing you with victory from the inside out. You see, this is the big answer in the scriptures for how do we fight sin. You think about it, when Jesus is at the end of his ministry and he looks at his disciples, like, it's better for you that I go away. That had to have been absolutely mind-blowing. To think that the second person of the Trinity could say to his people, it's better that I'm not here. I'm, I'm fairly certain Psalm 84 says there's no place better than being in the presence of God. I'm fairly certain there is no place better than being in the presence of God and having Jesus in our midst. It can't get better than that, can it? Well, according to Jesus, it can. It's not having Jesus in our midst. It's having the Spirit inside. Indwelling. Empowering. Equipping. Encouraging. Ministering. This is an aspect of the Bible that we do not think about nearly enough. That when you go to practice that pet sin, you have this spirit inside you. He's even the one empowering your body to do that evil deed. That's going to make sin feel a little bit different, doesn't it? That the heartbeat that I'm using, the blood that's coursing through my veins, the mental energy that I'm using to sin against my God, that is mental energy and body energy that the Spirit Himself even now is giving me. Again, this doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect this side of heaven. But it does mean we can get a real and genuine head start on it. There are some in our midst, I know, that grow very discouraged because that perfecting process goes more slowly than we like. I suspect, for me at least, and many others, it's probably because we don't understand how far we needed to go in the first place. But to rejoice that victory is real. Because God's Spirit resides within us. And He doesn't just reside within us. It's not like He sits inside twiddling His thumbs going, Oh my goodness, He's going to sin again. How many times? I love how it highlights in verse 3, look, the Spirit of God is going to fill Bezalel, Holyab. What, with, with what? His presence, certainly but also with ability and intelligence and wisdom, with knowledge in all craftsmanship, the ability to devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting and in carving wood to work in every craft. I I love how even here we see the Spirit of God show up, and He brings gifts. As He shows up into the the life of the people of God, He brings gifts. He's not a passive participant in this ride toward heaven. He is 
the perfect God who brings the perfect gifts. I love how even in the New Testament, again, that same imagery is taken up. What happens when the Spirit shows up? He brings gifts to His people. Spiritual gifts, we have that again talked about in 1 Corinthians. The gifts of the Spirit themselves, the the, uh, fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, we see all kinds of workings of God's Spirit. To think about just what some of those things are and to marvel. Those two different categories I even mentioned, some of them are task-oriented gifts. The ability to preach. That's a gift I have right now. You realize he could take that away from me this afternoon. That would be his privilege. He could do that. It would make for really awkward next week. So I figured that out. You know, that actually happened in the Welsh Revival, where a group of men were given the ability to preach, and it was taken away like one Sunday, just poof. One of the great Welsh preachers had struggled with it for the rest of his life because he had known what it felt like to f- preach with the fullness of the Spirit and then to have it just gone. Not because he had sinned, just the Lord closed that season of ministry in Wales. Gifting, a gift of giving, gift of service, the equipping to serve in the Lord's church, but then also those holy attributes that are markers of the Spirit's presence, gentleness, kindness, tenderness, holiness, modesty, chastity, truth, charity. It's intriguing that when the Spirit shows up in His people, you see both of those aspects begin to kind of produce and produce and produce and then produce even more. And sometimes I think we forget that that God's Spirit lives within us. As I labor towards obedience, those things are going to be the things that happen in me. And say that again, for both of those elements, if you're in Christ, you have spiritual gifts. You might not know what they are yet, and that's okay. The best way to figure them out is to use them. Work in the church until you figure out what you're good at or what we need. Because sometimes you realize that's, sometimes, that's the gift he's given you, is the need we have. In fact, actually, I would say more often than not, that's the gift he's given is the need we have. But also to labor as we do in the Spirit and to see these holy attributes increased within God's people. The Spirit of God working within us. I love this passage, not simply because I learned it the hard way in my ordination exams. I love this passage because of how optimistic it is in light of the Spirit's working. I mean, honestly, even as a preacher, as I'm reading through and studying this tabernacle stuff, it's brutally difficult. I mean, it's really difficult. The best Hebrew scholars in the world at parts of it are like, yeah, we have no idea what this means. Fluent in Hebrew, it's our best guess. There are parts of it that they say, well, yeah, we probably assume it means that, but we don't have the rest of the story, so we can't fully figure it out. Again, we have garments listed as being required to be made that we we weren't told. Moses was told on the mountain, but we haven't been told. And yet, it is so resoundingly optimistic that God will do it. 
And I think that's maybe the last part here as we reflect on this passage is to be even optimistic about our own obedience. You're going to be obedient if you're in Christ at some point. And the reason being is because obedience at the end of the day ultimately isn't only up to you. God will do it. It's like that old, you know, question for Sunday school class as you're kind of pondering and such, well, you know, how does sanctification work? Well, you, know, you read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. And that's true. You'll grow faster. You'll grow faster. If you're in Christ, you will grow whether you like it or not. Sometimes it's kicking and screaming. Sometimes it's running the wrong direction. Great portrait. Jonah grows a lot, doesn't he, at some point? Because God is the one in charge. And maybe I would just end with this final illustration as we think through it from the very beginning, where we started. God is not some sort of petty, vindictive, nasty little boss who gives us these ways in which he commands us to be obedient and then never equips us for the task. You may have labored under that kind of boss. Maybe she or he was unpleasant to deal with. Our God is very different. He's given us his spirit. He's given us the gifts of the spirit. He's given us the people of God. He's given us Christ as our redeemer. And he's given us his power so we will succeed. We will succeed. I would maybe just encourage you. Change your frame of mind just a little bit to be excited about what the Spirit is doing. Not just in this place, as we have very inconvenient dirt movers out there, but be excited about what He's doing in your life so that you're more motivated to join in and to serve. Let's pray. Oh God, we ask that we would indeed find mercy in Christ, that we would be filled with your spirit and equipped to serve. Oh Lord, give us victory over sin. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.